0: Yeah, it's a really interesting invitation, thank you. Uh, Because when I got told about the day, it seemed a really good chance to try and combine two things I've been doing for the last year or so. Um, One is a project called the Accelerated Academy, where with uh, a colleague, Philip Vostar, we've been looking at the idea of acceleration as a useful frame through which to try and understand the transformation in academic life. So to try and link together big structural changes in higher education to the the changing subjective experience of (coughs) day-to-day life, and we're particularly interested in the kind of psychosocial harms that can be seen in higher education, and how to make sense of them, not just in the manner of giving voice to things that are suppressed, but also to try and understand how they're structurally produced, and also how responses to them may actually intensify some of the overarching problems. And the other project is looking at how academics use social media. Uh, so I finished a few, uh, literally a few weeks ago, a book, Social Media for Academics, not the most much the title, uh, which is gonna be released by SAGE in March next year. So for today, the question that occurred to me is, what about thinking through the implications of the Accelerated Academy, as we call it, for social media and the particular, t- the, the different trajectories through which this could develop? <coughs> And so as a way of kind of making sense of the Accelerated Academy, we thought a lot about what it contrasts to. So we're talking about the vast academia. It's often contrasted to slow scholarship, but I like to think of it in more historical terms. Uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty, who, although I disagree with about everything, has always been a big intellectual influence on me. You know, he's one of the interlocutors that I have in my mind when I'm thinking things through. Uh, when he first went to Princeton, he got tenure at Princeton, He wrote a letter to a friend who had written in turn to Rorty asking him uh, how life was going at Princeton, you know, was he enjoying it, and (coughs) Rorty responded saying that although he didn't care for the philosophical profession, he was no more concerned for professional philosophy than he had previously been, he felt overjoyed that he'd looked into this life of being paid to read books and write about them. I love that description because it instantly resonated with the sense I had going into a part-time PhD quite a long time ago now, of academia as being a place where people read books and write about them and get paid for it. You know, I I feel a bit silly in retrospect that I believe that's what (laughs) academic life entails because it clearly doesn't. Whether or not it once did is another question. But, you know, this image of Rorty's life in Princeton, you know, really gripped me. Uh, You know, Princeton, I've... Visited there, not for this reason, I hasten to add, uh, a few months ago. And it's got the campus has this kind of gothic splendor. And it was a night where it had been snowing heavily when we visited. And just walking around the place, I kind of was thinking about this image of Rorty, you know, his life at Princeton. And, you know, sitting in front of the fireplace, reading his books, occasionally deigning to talk to students and tell them what he thinks about things. And it's kind of uh, as connotations of a very slow academy, a slow pace of life. Uh, And I also, when I imagine it, think of it as quiet, very quiet, and when I contrast that to my own university, you know, um, Warwick has what seems to be a constant stream of new building projects underway. Um, Over the last two years, the window outside my office, which, when I first moved into that office, had a beautiful view of the Warwickshire countryside. The Warwick Business School's new behavioral science center has gone up and up and up, Uh, so now the view has been completely blocked with, you know, building works constantly, lots of noise constantly on the way there. And so I think, you know, these are kind of illustrative, really. You know, they're not, it's not an empirical way of looking at it, but I think thematically it's interesting to think about how the the kind of texture of university life has changed, the feel of university life, by contrasting it to things that came before. Because it has changed. I mean, if you think about the UK context, uh, as Roger Burrows has pointed out in his really interesting work on metrics in the academy, there are over 100 metrics to which UK academics are potentially subject. <coughs> uh, various universities are beginning to introduce uh, expectations about grant income. And so if I remember correctly, at times higher ed uh, analysis found one in six uh, had been introdu- had introduced these expectations. And you know this is problematic in its own right, and it's you know it's likely to spread through competitive dynamics. But you think about um, if there is a declining pool of grant income, and people are under more pressure to submit applications to try and claim it, then you know tragedy of the commons effect kicks in, because the more people try, the less there is to go around, and the declining the level of likely success continues to decline. Uh, An issue that's very important to me is the massive expansion of precarious labour in higher education. Um, it's not a new trend by any means, but there is reason to believe it's intensifying and particularly in some cases where people are building careers that are finding innovative new ways of imposing precarious labour on those least able to resist it. And so a common thread in all this um, it are metrics. And in our work Philip and I have argued that Metrics need to be understood as a tool of commensurability. Metrics allow very different things to be evaluated in equal terms, to be measured against each other, to be assessed. And, you know, this is a well-recognized point in terms of auditing. But we're very interested in how this contributes to ratcheting up with people's own expectations. So if you, the, the, the way in which metrics allow oneself, to want to compare oneself to people who are doing very different types of work, And the way in which this can then in turn lead to a sense of expectation. So if this person has published six papers in the last year or two years, then perhaps I should publish six papers. They allow us to quickly and easily look across a broad range of people and see commonalities, assess people in similar terms, converging terms. And I think this is really problematic because this ratcheting of expectations is something that is being encouraged from on high as well. And so we'd, we'd be very interested in exploring how people voluntarily, ex- expectate in a kind of quasi-voluntaristic way, expectations are ratcheted up by comparing oneself to a peer group, or, you know, a comparable cohort that is getting bigger over time. And, but also you know, the kind of expectations of managers increase as well and they're enforced in an increasingly hands-on okay. way in many places. And the overarching effect, I think, is this expansion in what is expected, but crucially, without any uh, compa- corresponding increase in the time available. And so we like using the acceleration literature on this because it's very interesting analyses of the way in which people respond to temporal pressure. So people can multitask, people can do particular tasks quicker, But that in turn leads to subordination of some tasks relative to others. There are lots of different ways in which this logic can play itself out. But fundamentally, there's an objectivity to this. If the range of things you're expected to do increases, and you have no more time available in which to do them, then something has to change. And so in this project, we wanted to look at the kind of strategies people have for coping with acceleration in the Accelerated Academy, and the way in which competitive pressures you know, in turn, lead people to need to cope. The more effective some people become, the greater the expectations others then feel subject to. Uh, And it has led us to some very gloomy conclusions, (laughs) um, to say the least. But the political economist Will Davies has a lovely phrase, which I think captures something of this, where he talks about heating up the floor to see who can keep hopping the longest. And he doesn't just mean this about higher education, but I think it's a wonderful example of it. And, you know, it leaves me with this really vivid image of the ways in which people might respond differently to the floor heating up. Uh, you know, Some people probably do quite enjoy the hopping, other people look around and compare how effectively they're hopping to those around them. Uh, you know, some people will start monitoring themselves, you know, get a, a Fitbit band, and then start become more <laughs> optimised hoppers. Some people will fall and then get up again because they can't see any of the future but them to continue with the hopping. And crucially, and this was Will's point in the original article, some people just leave. And I think that is something that happens, and I think there are some very interesting institutional barriers to recognising the scale of exit from higher education. And I imagine people in this room probably have some insights into that from the sociology of higher education. I'd be very interested in them in particular. Um, And so this is, in a nutshell, the Accelerated Academy project as we've been developing it. And if anyone's interested, we're doing a big international conference in Prague uh, in December. It's a very nice place to go to in December. And the conference is free, um, and we've got tickets left. Uh, Where we've got, I think is from a whole range of disciplines exploring these themes. Because, you know, we've kind of had our own take on the Accelerated Academy, but we've encouraged others to try and develop the idea in their own way. And so this is one aspect of what I want to talk about. This notion of academic acceleration. And so in a particular institutional sphere structural pressures manifest themselves in an increase in the rate of change an increase in the pace of life and then as people develop strategies to cope with these challenges these can in turn ratchet up the expectations placed upon others but i'd also like to see social media in these terms which is something that i've not really thought much about because you know kind of as an expression of my own experience of acceleration i do lots of different things and sometimes it doesn't occur to me to connect the two together even though they're very obviously connected. Because I've been a big enthusiast about social media in higher education for a very long time, within the entirety of my life as a postgraduate. Uh, I found it's enriched my own experience of research. I think it's made me a better researcher. I read more widely. I develop my thoughts more routinely than I would have without it. And you know, I think it can introduce some of a collectivity that's often missing in higher education. It allows people to connect in new ways and do things together that they would not otherwise be able to do. But I've also become aware over time of the, the, the many downsides to social media in higher education. The pressures it can lead people to feel subject to. The risks to people from engaging online. Uh, and for my book, I did, belatedly uh, later than I intended to, um, did uh, some extensive research looking at just collecting all the cases I could find of media controversies, some of which were deliberately stoked up um, you know, in a, for political purposes, about things academics had said or done or things academics had been said to have said, or said to have done online. And you know, some of it is, uh, some of it was quite terrifying um, and the people who are most at risk, the risk is not distributed equally another thing and over time um, you know there's no reason to think this is not going to get more pronounced um, as there's now an increasing pressure for academics to engage online. And so once I start thinking about it, I mean this kind of pressure is something which is yet another expectation, it's yet another thing people feel compelled to do and the more workshops and training sessions I've run about, I, about social media and higher education over the last few years, the more I've noticed that the concerns people voice tend to be the same ones, and this is the, one of the most pronounced concerns about it's just another thing to do. And I think against the backdrop of acceleration, higher education, this leads social media to look quite problematic in a way, because I'd only previously, until the last year or two, considered it as something voluntary, considered it as something, you know, that I will try and argue in a little, little bit has genuinely emancipatory potential within it. But actually, it can also be a tool of control uh, in a, a way that I think is only now starting to be appreciated. Because I think what anthropologists call polymedia is a crucial part of this. So we, the media environment in which we exist has changed radically. And you know, as a critical sociologist, I, I'm instinctively hostile to juxtapositions where the traditional old gets contrasted to the <coughs> radical new environment in which we live. But I think this is something new, the multiplication of communications channels without any corresponding emergence of accepted normative guidelines for how each one should be used. Um, so to like, take an example that I seem to encounter more and more often, the tendency for people to use text messages as a way of sidestepping email. <coughs> I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but I much prefer people just keep work stuff to my email. But increasingly, I find people texting me work questions. And when I want to ask them, it's because it's a way of avoiding their their inbox. And this is something where you know you have another channel opening up. And for one person, it's situationally rational for them to use this additional channel as a you know it's and it's a channel that's been there for a long time but had not been used for work purposes. Uh, but for me, you know, if I get a text message unless I respond to it immediately, I very quickly forget about it. And so if it's something that I have to respond to really do wish people would put it in my email you know because then it's there until I deal with it I know this is something idiosyncratic about me but it's an idiosyncrasy that I suspect many others share but you know I think these (coughs) kinds of challenges posed by polymedia are emerging uh, across the Academy and when you for instance the rules governing or the expectations governing interaction on social media so teaching staff interacting with students on social media that's something which people have often asked me in workshops. Uh, my own experience of it has that it's made me unco- is that it has frequently made me uncomfortable without me being able to articulate why. But students like social media. So are students using social media in lieu of where they would once have sent an email? Or are they doing it as something additionally over and above that? And so you know, these kinds of uh, normative questions about is this the right way to be doing something? Should I communicate this way or should I communicate that way? There's a cognitive cost to these questions. You know, individually it's trivial. But the overarching complexity of the institutional environment, I think, changes radically when the number of communications channels becomes plural in this way. And social media is a crucial part of this, but not the only part by any means, because it is just the sense of one more thing to do. Uh, You know, one additional expectation. Loaded onto a whole set of expectations that have been ratcheted up through this, you know, through this process, and it's in this environment that I can really understand antipathy towards social media, and about the kind of possibility of resentment towards it growing over time, and people are becoming locked into being identifying as refuseniks, um, because it's seen as something that people have to do, and it contributes to this sense of the digital ecology uh, to use the phrase from this morning as something that can be very overwhelming. It leads to a proliferation of questions about what should I do, what shouldn't I do, is this the right way of doing things, is this the wrong way. Um, it leads to an expansion of the channels upon which people feel obliged to communicate. It leads to an objective increase in the volume of communication across those channels. and I think it leads <coughs> to a kind of overwhelm in the face of all the things that you know that you do not know. Uh, like my PhD was... <coughs> a theoretical work on the sociology of higher education but it was more focused upon the theoretical aspect of it than the higher education aspect but when I started I remember very specifically the feeling of realising after been told in supervision that I needed to engage more with the higher education literature I'm going to look at higher education journals and being hit by the sense that I could read those higher education journals for much of my working week and still not keep up with the literature on higher education. Uh, About six years ago, I started a project on asexuality, so people who do not experience sexual attraction. And this is something that at the time was completely unknown to me until I happened to meet two people socially. (coughs) And I just found it fascinating because, (coughs) you know, I, I didn't understand it. And I also found there was almost no academic literature on it. And over the past six years, the academic literature on asexuality I started to expand year upon year and there was that creeping sense that retrospective found very interesting of I'm no longer keeping up with this you know for a few years without even trying to I felt I had a grasp on the entirety of this literature but then as new things are produced that grasp starts to fail and you know this is something that I think happens across fields and it, I think it was a particularly striking experience with asexuality because it was a completely new field there was a point in which you could read the entire academic literature on asexuality in an afternoon And, you know, now it's probably up to about a couple of weeks, maybe, but, you know, it's still relatively new. And so this kind of acceleration of the rate of publication is something that poses problems in its own terms, because Philip and I have argued that you can see a lot of the new pathologies surrounding journal publishing that are opening up as expressions of this, not in any direct linear way. But so, um, you know, things like the problems relating to the peer review process, as an expansion in the whole, in the sheer quantity of things that need to be peer reviewed But it's not just the kind of objective increase in the number of articles being published, Uh, it's also our awareness of them. And so, I mean, if you start following people and engage on Twitter, on the one hand it can be a fantastic way of overcoming disciplinary silos, or silos within your discipline, because one of the things academics share on Twitter is academic papers, but I try and save things I want to read wherever I can. And it's now left me with a reading folder in my email that has about two thousand papers in it that I'm never going to read the majority of them. And so, you know, that I think is a very interesting experience because it's a there's a there's a subjective and cultural aspect to it as well as the objective production of a greater volume of, of scholarly literature. You know, we become more aware of the things that we're missing out on. And I think this can increase the anxiety in a way, you know, but am I keeping up with this? Is everyone else keeping up with this? Is it just me who's falling behind? You know, I think in this sense, uh, to use Richard Hall's phrase, we're kind of offering acceleration as a theory of academia as an anxiety-producing machine that is becoming ever more uh, energetic with time. And so, you know, I think there are lots of pathologies that social media is generating in higher education. There's the risk of rendering things banal, which is inherent, the possibility is inherent in the, the, popul- the principle of popularity around which these platforms are structured. So there's been a really interesting growth over the last year or so in what I tend to think of as viral marketing accounts, so the dynamics of BuzzFeed meet higher education. Uh, Nine Quarterly, who's probably the most well established of these, uh, who is a former German uh, Professor of German literature, if I remember correctly, who now works full time on his Twitter feed and has a book and a speaking tour. And mine quarterly posts strange Adorno esque maxims, edited images. And you know, I, I think there's something of genuine intellectual value in this. Uh, and so, yeah, the account has accumulated 100,000 100, followers. Uh, you know, he's got a column in a German national newspaper, speaks all over the world. And uh, another one that's even uh, gone beyond this is something called Shit Academics Say. Uh, and so that's more nakedly a case of looking for viral memes. You know, it's done quite systematically, looking for things that people will engage with and people will share widely. And you know, that's very funny. But in the last six months or so, I've noticed all manner of additional accounts that I've opened up. And with each passing one, the whole exercise strikes me as ever more banal. Uh, there was a controversy recently where one of these viral marketing accounts called Grad School Elitist was found to have just been systematically copying and pasting jokes from other Twitter feeds and then banning anyone who pointed this out. And you know, this isn't really trivial but I think you can see, Like, I see this as the cutting edge of a dynamic by which the architecture of social media impels certain modes of behaviour which are clearly antithetical to good scholarship. There's a tension, it's not an outright contradiction, there's a tension here. And you know, it's one that I think people instinct, a lot of people instinctively picked up on at the outset with social media and academia. And I'm starting to see that point in a way that I didn't previously. You know, and it's a case of metrics. Um, the higher education, as much as I love it, for instance, my suspicion would be that their exam hours, uh, thing they run every year, that, that I suspect is driven by a concern for metrics because these are things that get shared widely online. And, you know, there's a whole strand of thinking on academic publishing, which could very easily play into this. Uh, the move towards, a, you know, a publish then filter model. And I think there's a real danger that social media, in this case, then leads to a, a erosion of some really important values that I think have never really been had to be defended in the, in the same way because there wasn't such a potential technological threat to them. But, you know, conversely, as well as these very negative trends, I, you know, I think there is a maturatory a potential within social media. So, you know, the kinds of conversations that people have privately amongst friends, amongst colleagues about their conditions and their working lives, these are things that are increasingly taking place out in the open. And in some cases, this <coughs> is an, ex- an experience, solidarity in which, you know, by sharing our concerns, by sharing things that trouble us, we realise that other people are in a similar situation to ourselves. And it leaves people feeling that they're part of, a, you know, something more communal. But it can also lead to actual networked action. Um, and so recent activist kickback against the University of Warwick to teach higher scheme, that's something that much of it was orchestrated by social media. And, you know, the solidarity that that allows is something that can actually have a material impact on the operation of power in higher education. <coughs> and earlier on today, uh, the conversation about the kind of feral doctoral ped- pedagogy that social media facilitates, so people self-organising, spontaneously leading their own projects, you know, these are all things that I think can contribute to a more open and more uh, humane uh, higher education, um, but the kind of overarching theme that I was trying to that have been trying to bring out is about the, the different directions in which embedding social media in higher, edu- edu- higher education could take in an academic environment where acceleration is starting to uh, intensify. Because on the one hand, there is this potential to short circuit a state of the Philip and I've written about as cognitive triage. So the kind of mentality of uh, intensifying demands into which people get subject the kind of firefighting psychology in which you try and work your way through a to-do list that grows longer over the course of the day as you're doing things on it and you know in that kind of uh, mentality that experience of life temporal horizons start to narrow you know you think about today and tomorrow not about the next week the next month the next year if the expectations your situation is subject to are intensifying in such a way, you're less likely, because you literally don't have the time, to stand back and think, actually, is there something about this environment as a whole that needs to change? And the lack of temporal commitment to something like Twitter, you know, you can, as much as you might want to agonize over 140 characters, it can only take so long to write a tweet. You know, even a blog post. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that bloggers will spend two hours or less on a standard blog post, many, m- many much less. And I think this can kind of short circuit the temporal accounting into which we can get stuck. Whether these things that are important but they're not urgent and thus when the urgent is so pronounced then the pool of that which is urgent is growing at such a rate, you know we can tend to just leave the important aside, the things that we have some vague memory of caring about but that we hope that we will one day get to. And social media can short circuit that and allow people opportunities to explore this. And I think you can see a kind of network solidarity on Twitter, for instance, where there's a kind of willingness to be helpful that is much easier to manifest when the time commitment involved in that helpfulness is just a matter of sending a quick email or sending a a quick tweet. Uh, Because on this way in social media, the important doesn't contradict the urgent in the manner in which it tends to. And I think it can dissipate the, the, the kind of pleasures that people can take in acceleration because uh, you know, it's, there's a certain kind of delight that it's possible to take in busyness. It can be comforting, you know, it can be rewarding, it can give a focus and a structure to life that it would not otherwise have. And social media, I think, we're trying to understand it as something that then can connect to but transform these underlying dynamics. And so, yeah, to draw to a close then, I think there are <coughs> two Sorry, I was trying to think about how to phrase this. I think there are two ways in which this could manifest itself as extreme types. One would be an expansion of what we could see as almost the gift economy on social media. So people giving of their time and effort and the connections that form through that. So giving is a form of connecting. Um, and the other is the kind of winner takes all or winner takes most attentional economy. Because the you know the, democ- the, the, the democratising rhetoric with which social media companies present what they do is fundamentally will you know it's willfully misleading. These platforms are written to uh, these pl- platforms are designed to reward the already well established and to generate more traffic and hopefully increase a- advertising revenue. <laughs> All voices are not equal on social media, and the more prominent one is to begin with, the easier it is to accrue more prominence and I think in terms of these broader changes to higher education this paints a really worrying picture about where things could go you know the future which some envision, envisage where you know philosophy students in the US are all taught by Michael Sandel you know the ex- those who are paying expensive fees are taught by him in person but the rest of the philosophy students can be taught by him remotely and then there are superstar professors these Elitist tendencies within social media, I think, could reinforce these uh, trends in some very worrying ways. But th- I don't think this is anything in inactual- th- I don't think there's anything in actual about this. Um, and so, the, the potential in this gift economy of social media, um, the kind of collective, uh, the collective goods, the collective interests, the collective values that can emerge there, and these are things that are genuinely collective. You know, they're collective in in the sense that they cannot be reduced, they cannot be enjoyed individually. Um, And I think nurturing these and the communities of practice, the the cooperative communities, where people work together on projects they mutually care about, for no reason other than the fact that they care about them. You know, that is something that could lead in a very different direction. And so because, um, for philosophy science reasons, I don't think we can predict the future. I'm not even going to try. But I wanted to offer these as two very different outcomes that I could see as potentially latent within our present circumstances, um, one in which social media and academic life more generally is subjugated to strategic plans, instrumental reasoning, an idea of how to best accumulate status and prestige within a system that increasingly excludes the vast majority, or is something orientated towards collective concerns, towards things that matter, things that matter communally and social media could be, ha- has the possibility of helping us achieve these in their more energetic way than has previously been the case Uh, thank you